Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast series for product management and product marketing professionals. I'm Lisa Sorg-Friedman, and today I'm talking with Ayal Danan, founder and president of Ignite Advisory Group, which helps B2B companies engage with executives at key accounts through customer and partner advisory boards. Before launching Ignite Advisory Group, Ayal developed and managed highly influential and strategic customer advisory boards encompassing key executives from Fortune 500 companies. He's worked directly with Xerox, Adobe, Aetna, Qualcomm, Symantec, Brocade, Reuters, Iron Mountain, Verizon, and Equifax, to name just a few. Welcome, Ayal. Pleasure to be here, Lisa, today. I thought we could start... um, with a little bit of background on advisory boards and why they matter. Sure. So Ignite Advisory Group uh, has been running advisory boards for leading companies for for the last uh, 10 years. Uh, We focus mainly on uh, big technology firms such as uh, HP, Dell, Cisco, Amazon, Oracle, also working with uh, smaller tech companies such as Arbor Networks and Ustar, and basically any company in the B2B space that is looking to engage their customers. So when you look at advisory boards, it's useful to think of them as operating on one of three levels. The first level is customer satisfaction and ease of doing business with. That's the category where net promoter score figures in, how to improve internal customer service, customer support operations. The second level, Lisa, is around products, solutions, roadmap, uh, beta programs, features, functionality, moving from products to solutions, moving from legacy applications to cloud applications. Anything that has to do with products and solutions fits squarely within the products and solution advisory board. And then the third level is a strategic advisory board where you bring your strategic customers together to provide guidance and validation on go-to-market strategies, on pricing, on channels, on culture, on uh, regulations. Since you focus on customer advisory boards, do you find that many companies use them? Absolutely. I, you know, I think that companies that make a continuous effort to utilize advisory boards reap significant benefits. According to studies and research that we've done, um, first and foremost, if you have um, your strategic or your most important customers on an advisory board, our research has shown that 95% of uh, these customers remain on the board and as customers for the long term. Uh, So that's a very significant benefit in terms of customer retention. Uh, There's also a 9% increase in uh, new business from customer members by the second year. It doesn't happen in the first year since you you need to establish trust and credibility, but by the second year, there's a 9% increase in new business. That could come from either existing existing, uh, lines of businesses within that customer account. It could come from new business opportunities within their organizations. And many times it comes from references to other uh, companies that this particular member of the advisory board is aware of. Uh, There's also uh, 57% higher participation of advisory board members versus non-advisory board members in reference programs, in testimonials, and uh, thought leadership. And we see 
a 2x increase in executive voice of the customer insights gathered. So there's a lot of work to do it properly, but if you're able to actually execute on the promise of an advisory board, it can transform your business. You had mentioned that you try to um, solicit strategic customers to be on many of these boards. Is there a concern at some point about whether other customers' voices aren't being heard if you focus on, you know, the customers who perhaps have the loudest voice? That's, that's a great question, Lisa. So uh, you need to take care in making sure that the personas involved in the advisory board will match. So it's not only getting the right level of participation. We strongly believe in peer exchange. If you're looking for uh, advice from executives, you need to make sure that only executives will be on the board. If you're looking for uh, product direction, you need to make sure that the people that are in charge of product direction in their respective organizations are going to be on the board. That's how boards operate when there's real, uh, a real sense of peer exchange. So you need to make sure that when you select, and that's in the design phase, when you select the companies and the individuals coming to the board, you can't just uh, have uh, an Excel spreadsheet and say, you know what, I'm going to take number four, seven, and eight. You need to do deep analysis on the individuals in terms of their compatibility to such a board, in terms of their openness for uh, new ideas, hearing other members, and usually you're able to get it from uh, your sales managers, your relationship managers, who have a, a pretty good feel of the individual. Um, otherwise, you can run into significant problems once you actually have the board up and running and you have one or two dominant members that take control of uh, every situation and pretty much monopolize the uh, speaking time in a board setting. That could be uh, quite a challenge for running a world-class advisory board. So what are some of the things you can do to ensure that you have a really stable peer exchange group and that you don't have people monopolizing? So a couple of things. Uh, number one, you need to do your homework in terms of preparing the agenda. So we highly recommend that you interview all of the members prior to the meeting. The uh, agenda creation process, and we can spend more time on it, Lisa, takes about three or four months before the meeting. Um, it involves creating a discussion guide, an internal discussion guide that has the most relevant topics for your company and what do you think are the most relevant topics for the customers. It involves reaching out to the customers and interviewing them individually on this discussion guide and any other topics that they think is relevant. You get a wealth of information from these interviews. You find out what are they thinking about right now, what is top of mind for them, what, is the mo what are the most relevant topics for them. And then you can use that, if you're the facilitator of the, uh, of the meeting, you can actually use the insights and perspectives that you um, obtain during the interviews to involve the relevant members during the advisory board session. So obviously, it helps if you have an external facilitator that can call the shots and is seen as an objective uh, voice of reason. With the advisory board, it's always easier to uh, try to control the dynamics if you have an external person trying to do it versus, um, you know, if you're trying to let one of 
your executives, company executives, um, trying to control someone, a member that is just taking all the time from the other members, that can get pretty sensitive. So that, that would be another recommendation, Lisa. And are advisory boards better suited for particular types of companies? I would say any B2B company of a certain size, you know, if, you are, if you're just starting and it's a complete startup and you don't have any customers and, you, and you're trying to figure it out, um, an advisory board, you know, the sort that we're talking about here, the one that takes a lot of uh, care and investment on your end, is probably not the best idea. But I think that once you get to a certain size, let's say, you know, um, 20 to $30 million and up, um, you know, I believe that it makes a lot of sense. We actually worked uh, one time with a company in the insurance space, in the insurance uh, software space, and that company only had $5 million in revenue. That's it. So, you know, not, not a major tech company by, uh, by any stretch. And they created an advisory board made up of senior executives in the insurance space since they, they sold into the insurance space and Ignite Advisory Group helped them with this board for five years. And the end result of this board was that uh, this small company was uh, acquired by a major company, a major software company in the insurance space, um, since the founders of the company were able to take the feedback and the guidance and the input of the members, the senior insurance executives, and they're able to implement, I would say, 90% of the suggestions and recommendations, which is pretty rare. Usually companies don't go to that extent. And as a result, they built a very strong foundation for an exit strategy, and that's that was their goal from the get-go. So um, it can even work with very small companies that are willing to listen to their customers and, most importantly, take action. So do you have any recommendations for starting a new advisory board? Absolutely. Um, the number one recommendation is to spend enough time thinking through the design phase of the advisory board. Um, we always believe that you need a compelling and ideally a strategic theme if you're trying to create a more strategic board to attract the right members. So it can be all about your company. It has to be about what is going on in the market. What are some of the technological changes that are happening in the marketplace? Are there any opportunities? Are there any disruptions, any challenges that would gather a group of decision makers and influencers together for an advisory board. If you focus it only on your company, you, you're really taking a short-sighted, short-sighted approach to advisory board. If you focus on the areas that are relevant to your company and to the members, if you're finding that set of issues that are germane to um, ongoing success of the member organizations and your organizations, and you're creating a sense of shared future with the members, that would be a very good way to start the advisory board. A couple of other tips. Uh, we talked about the fact that the members need to be peers of equal stature, birds of a feather kind of a thing. Um, yes. In terms of the overall management of the advisory board, you know, you must manage the recruitment campaign. You must bring the members on board, and you must have a solid program management with constant attention and care. So you can't do a half-baked effort in creating an advisory board. You know, we are talking about your most important customers. 
So you need to think uh, very carefully about the investment needed and who's going to uh, do the work. Do they have the skills and the expertise to do the work? Um, another top recommendation would be the 80-20 rule. So this is a very strong uh, recommendation for many companies that are used to bringing customers together and then there's a 500-slide presentation and they pretty much talk to the members without getting any feedback. So we like to reverse the equation here and make sure that the members speak 80% of the time and the company executives or directors or managers or employees only speak 20% of the time. So if you are hosting a, an advisory board, your job is to ask the right questions and pretty much listen for the majority of the sessions and discussions. Not easy to do. A lot of companies, you know, like to revert back to uh, uh, either a sales pitch or talking about their products and solutions. This is something that is um, almost a paradigm shift. And um, if you do that, if you're able to actually allow the members this platform for talking to each other, right, that, that's where the beauty of the advisory board actually comes to play. Um, and, and it does require a certain skill in facilitating these sessions, but if you allow the group to talk to each other, not to you as the, as the company sponsor, but they talk to each other about their challenges, their pain points, uh, the opportunities in the marketplace, and you just sit back and, you know, if you need to direct the conversation to make sure that everyone gets um, an equal participation time, that's fine, but you allow the members to speak 80% of the time versus you as a company speaking 80% of the time. Yeah, I think that would be really hard to do. I I could see myself regressing back into the 2080 rule, you know, where where I would end up talking more. Um, are there things that you do, exercises you go through with some of the companies you work with to, to help them with that? Because like you said, it is a very I, – I can see that as a very challenging thing. It is, it is very challenging. And, you know, one thing that we like to do – with companies that we work with, we provide very specific guidelines to the employees before the meeting. So mm -hmm. we always recommend to have, obviously, as much preparation as needed. Uh, we believe that a ratio of about five hours of preparation for each hour of actual session is required prior to the meeting. And that's in addition to you know, ongoing conference calls and preparing the agenda. But in terms of actually preparing for the session itself, if you have a two-hour session, you need to invest at least 10 hours before that in preparing for that session. Uh, so we go through, Lisa, a um, pretty uh, exhaustive list of guidelines to employees. I mean, some of the guidelines that we have, is, you know, keep your comments and observations brief and to the point. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't want uh, anyone to start going through a major review of uh, everything that happened in the product line since, uh, you know, 25 years ago. It, it's not really relevant. So we ask everyone to be brief and to the point. We ask employees to really think about the type of questions they ask. That's really important. The heart of a successful advisory board is asking the right questions. Now, if you don't ask the right question, and let's say you have 20 members on a board, and an employee is asking a question that is not really well thought of in terms of the impact it would have. Maybe it's, it's going on a complete tangent. Guess what? You have 20 members. If each one will speak for a minute or two, 
that's 40 minutes, you know, and these 40 minutes, you know, you'll never get them back. So we urge the employees to really think about the type of questions they ask. We urge them not to ask multiple questions in the, the same question. So sometimes they ask like three or four questions within the, first, within the same question. Um, when a member is trying to come up with a point, what we find that, you know, as individuals, as human beings, obviously we, we think somewhat differently about things. Some people are very quick to the draw and can come up with very quick answers. Some people just take more time in articulating their thoughts and thinking about the different consequences. So it's very important that if a member is trying to actually come up with a perspective or an insight, that no one interrupts them. No one is trying to, you know, prod them along. You need to give them enough time to uh, formulate their thinking. Same thing when you ask a question. Sometimes you ask a question and no one is responding immediately. So the immediate tendency is either to rephrase the question or come up with another question or, you know, trying to ask a particular member, hey, what do you think about this and that? And it's really important just to pause and let it sink in. Sometimes people need time to think about the question. So, you know, that, that's another uh, significant uh, process of the facilitation process that allows members time to think about what they want to uh, to say. And if a member is saying something, instead of an employee responding immediately and telling them, well, you know what, we had this feature in our product for the last 20 years, or, you know, if they talk about the competition and someone um, in terms of the comp company employees trying to jump in and defend their company, it's very important when a member says something to allow another member to respond to them first. And in that way, you're creating that uh, dialogue that we talked about, the 80-20 rule. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of upfront prep work with your client companies. That said, I imagine that there are some mistakes that you encounter. Can you talk a little bit about some of the more common mistakes you, you see? Sure. Um, I would say the, the first big mistake is thinking that the advisory board is really a sales event. So obviously, you know, you need um, sales involvement. You know, you need the sales executives, the senior, senior vice president of sales or the vice president of sales. Obviously, you need them in the meeting. They are integral to the success of the advisory board. But we see many companies that simply treat it as a sales event. And, you know, we talk about the ideal ratio of participants, company participants to customers, which is two to one in favor of the customers, right? So if you have 20 customers, 20 members, you shouldn't have more than 10 company participants. Many times we actually see that ratio reversed. You know, you have, let's say, 10 customers and you have 25 employees. Hmm. Yeah, Lisa, and many times wow. these employees are, you know, sales managers. So this is something that needs to be avoided at all costs. If the customers are coming in to an advisory board and they see a room flooded with sales managers and, you know, not many customers in there, you know what, they'll be there for the first thing, but uh, you will not get them for the second meeting. Yeah, that would make me feel uncomfortable. I'd feel like it was a sales 
oriented meeting, you know, where I was going to be asked to spend money. <laughs> so. Exactly, exactly the case. So that would be the first, you know, mistake that we see that companies yes. are doing out there. Um, another one is that uh, many companies treat the advisory board as another event. Now, we have nothing against the word event or the conferences and events. They're, they're valuable and important. But in the context of an advisory board, it's a mistake to think of the advisory board meeting as an event. When you think about an event, you're thinking about a one-off opportunity to engage with your customers. A real advisory board allows you to make sure that this is not an event but a continuous program. And the continuous part is really important. It's not just um, one event and then nothing happens. It's a black a black hole, it's a void in between meetings. We actually advocate systemic engagement during the meeting, uh, in between the, the meetings. So it's not an event, it's a meeting. And we can definitely talk about um, what is the engagement uh, model uh, could look like. In terms of other um, major mistakes that we see out there, we see companies that have really loose rules of engagement with the members. You know, there's nothing really that says, what, you know, what are the objectives of the advisory board? What is the scope of the advisory board? What are the expected deliverables of the advisory board? Why the company is even creating the advisory board in the first place? What are they hoping to achieve? Um, who is going to manage the program? Who is taking care of the uh, travel expenses? What type of communication frequency will happen? All of that needs to be covered in a charter. And the charter is the legal document that governs the advisory board. So that's, you know, we talked about uh, being sales-focused, looking at it as an event. We talked about loose rules of engagement. A couple other mistakes that uh, come to mind. Uh, You know, the seats are filled based on who's familiar. So you're trying to create an advisory board, and you say, you know what, Lisa, it's pragmatic marketing. Oh, she's great, and, you know, we, we need to have her on board. And no one is really taking the time to really think deeply about what exactly are we trying to create here and who would be the ideal persona to attend this meeting. It could be that Lisa, in this case, using you, Lisa, uh, it could be that you would be the ideal, the ideal member, but it could be that you are too senior for such an advisory board if it's not really focused on uh, strategic issues and we're trying to create a strategic advisory board. So um, that's another mistake. Um, another mistake is that you create an advisory board, you invite, you invite uh, members and customers, but you really don't tell them for how long this engagement is going to be. It's like, hey, mm. we're creating an advisory board, you're invited. Well, you know, what is the tenure? Um, what is expected at the end of the tenure? Again, that needs to be clearly defined. Uh, we talked about making sure that it's not going to be a one-way presentation, but more of a strategic and operational dialogue. Um, And the last two things that come to my mind, number one, many times when you go to the actual meeting, it's a mile wide and inch deep. There's probably 10 or 15 topics fighting for space in in the course of a day or a day and a half or two days of the meeting. So each, each topic gets 45 minutes and you're trying to cram as much into it as possible. We believe that's a mistake. Our approach is to focus on 
three or four hard-hitting topics and just do a deep dive on these topics. There is no way you can do more than that. We believe that each session should be at least two hours. You know, we don't believe in 45-minute sessions. And you really need to get either a sense of consensus or what are the key patterns in the um, industry right now that are happening. You need, you need to get a sense of what's going on in a session, and it takes time to do that. So focus on three or four topics instead of trying to get 10 or 12 in because you have the customers in there. And the last one, which is you know, probably the most uh, important here, is that in many cases what we see out there that the feedback goes into some kind of a vacuum. No one is doing anything with the feedback, the input, the guidance, the validation that the members provide. And that is a great mistake when you don't take action. And I'm not saying that you need to take action on each and every single uh, point or initiative or project. However, when you do not take any action and the members feel that no one is listening to them, that's a kiss of death for an advisory board. Now, what about um, an existing program that's not going well? Do you have any suggestions for revamping such a program? Are there things you can do to salvage something that's not working? That's a great question. You're asking very good questions, Lisa. So, <laughs> in terms of salvaging an existing program, it really depends on the status of the program and, and what's going on there. Sometimes you can do that by uh, creating a new charter, by nominating chairpersons from the members for different subcommittees or work streams, by uh, looking with a fresh uh, set of eyes on the design and objectives of the board. So it can be done by introducing gamification and we do a lot of gamification during the meetings themselves in terms of uh, soliciting feedback and engagement from the members. So there are certain things that you can definitely do. However, there are some situations where the situation is so dire in the sense that no one actually contacted the members for six or nine months or you know, no one within the company really cares about the advisory board. No one sees the value. There is no executive sponsor, for example, that is, you know, uh, you know, let's say he or she really has a vested interest in the success of the advisory board. So there are certain situations where we go into companies uh, on a consulting basis and we just tell them, you know what, it's not going to work. You just need to discontinue the advisory board, send uh, nice letters and plaques and awards to all of the members that participated. And if you want to start from fresh, you know, we can start from fresh, but we can't salvage it. Well, since we're talking a little bit about programs that aren't going well, do you have any disasters you'd like to share, things you've seen that, um, you know, just kind of made you smack your head because <laughs> they just didn't get it? Yeah, well, a couple of... Uh, anecdotes and examples. Um, I was uh, facilitating an advisory board for, uh, for a major company in New York City, and the uh, CEO of that company came to this meeting, and he had 45 minutes to present the company strategy, right? I mean, you always have this session on company strategy, and um, he had 45 minutes because he flew in with, the, with his private jet only for that session, for 45 minutes, and then he had to uh, fly somewhere else. Uh. Yeah. 
as it happens, uh, this CEO was really into yoga. And I guess he found yoga at a later age and he fell in love with it. And, you know, he started to talk to the members about his, you know, newfound uh, exercise regime, doing yoga exercises every day. And, you know, I think for five or ten minutes it was interesting, but he just kept on talking about, you know, breathing techniques and asana and, you know, how he changed his life. And it was 20 minutes into the 45 minutes that, um, you know, and this is the CEO and chairman of the company. And, uh, you know, I'm looking around around the room, you know, I think that some customers, you know, probably thought that uh, it, it's it's not really relevant to them, but they didn't say anything. And obviously anyone within the company that was in the room didn't say anything, since uh, obviously this is their, their boss. So I just took advantage of the fact, you know, he talked about breathing techniques, I took advantage of the fact that he had to breathe from time to time and I just told him you know Mr. Chairman this is very very um, informative however we have all the customers here and I know that you need to leave in about 25 minutes it would be great to hear about the company strategy <laughs> well so this anecdote that you just shared makes the perfect case for why you might want to have a third party facilitator there because people at the company aren't going to tell the emperor he has no clothes, you know. And that, say that's him, a good hey. point, Lisa. I mean, I can tell you, if I were in their shoes, I mean, they're just looking in, you know, I don't know, looking down at, at, at their chairs. I mean, no one said anything. And uh, you're right. It's, it's uh, not a, a career-limiting move to uh, interrupt your boss in such a way. But, you know, if you have an <laughs> external person doing that, it's, it's a different proposition. Yeah. That's that's one example. Another example that comes to mind was uh, one time when uh, you know you always do networking activities in uh, this advisory board. And uh, one time, uh, one company that we worked with took the members to uh, kind of a dude ranch. And uh, when we got there, there are live ammunition and shotguns and handguns, and <laughs> there was really no. Uh, no supervision, anyone could take any weapon and just shoot around at you know the mountains and what have you. It was <laughs> pretty uh pretty scary, but uh luckily, no one got hurt during the uh <laughs> during the advisory board. Oh my gosh, oh, what a great story well, since you've shared some of the disasters, how about sharing a few success stories, things you've seen that have gone very, very well? yeah, I mean, uh, I think many success stories to uh to choose from, uh, if I look at the example of uh, Iron Mountain, uh, which is in the uh, data business, you know, their advisory board is so influential that the customers, the members, are actually jumping on conference calls every single month to advance particular topics. One was a thought leadership piece, um, and this is around... Uh, information governance. So the members of this uh, subcommittee were so enthusiastic about the progress that they were making that uh, they made a commitment to join monthly conference calls to advance a piece of thought leadership around information governance, and, and they even brought in other teams from their organizations. And the result was uh, um, a guide for information governance in financial services that Iron Mountain is able to showcase in trade shows and events, 
It's on their website, and it got thousands of downloads. So, you know, this is a, a very clear example of a company that uh, is able to engage their customers and create a real deliverable out of the advisory board. Now, you, you had mentioned a little bit before about um, how advisory boards really are more like programs. It isn't just a meeting, but there's uh, the importance of having sustained communication and interaction among the members between meetings. So do you have any suggestions on how to drive that kind of engagement? So the real challenge in an advisory board is making sure that once the meeting is over, that you're able to pinpoint what are the, let's say, four or five key themes or key projects or key initiatives that the board and the members can work on following the meeting. You know, sometimes uh, on the, on the um, Ignite Advisory Group side, we go to do uh, just benchmarking and assessment, and we just watch advisory board meetings without uh, trying to run them. And many times we see that these meetings end with no list of priorities, no list of action items, no list of what are the most important initiatives and projects that we need to focus on. They just end. <laughs> you know, time is over. Everybody's having lunch, and that's it. So during the meeting itself, you need to make any effort to identify the most important projects and initiatives that the members feel passionate about and your company really needs uh, from a strategic or product perspective or a customer satisfaction perspective. And you need to find these projects, and then you need to design a way to keep on working with the members virtually in between meetings through the creations of work streams and subcommittees and task forces and advance the agenda on these initiatives. And you know, a good way of um, looking at it, it's something that we uh, developed with Intel, is a, cat you know, a, a three, um, three categories for each initiative, proposed initiative. Category A is we absolutely going to do it. Great idea, great concept. We're on it. Here's the timeline. Here are the uh, owners. Here's what we need from you. So category A is we're moving uh, full steam ahead. Category B is this is interesting. However, we need more time to explore it. And here are the things that we need to explore before we can make a decision. And category C, and this is really the challenging one, Lisa, for a lot of companies, is we are not going to do it. And here's why we're not going to do it. So companies are pretty good at A and B, but um, I would say that not many are very good at actually saying that they're not going to do something. And if you actually do that, if you have category C in there, and you explain why you're not going to do that, that creates a lot of trust and credibility, and realistically, it's much more uh, practical because there's no way, if you come from a meeting with uh, 30 or 40 different projects and initiatives, there's no way you will be able to execute on all of them. So we recommend getting the, the four or five during the meeting and gaining agreement and consensus from the members that these are the four or five most important and relevant topics that you, you need to follow up with and you need to actually create some work on. And during the meeting, actually scope out what would be the deliverables, who would be the sponsor from the company, who would be a potential uh, customer chairperson, what are the exact deliverables that we need to get at the end of six months or nine months or 12 months. So 
the meeting itself, the face-to-face meeting, is the platform that you use to actually launch the ongoing engagement with the members. Other um, other ideas for engaging the members, obviously, uh, if you can bring thought leaders from your industry, doesn't have to be an analyst, but it could be you know an influential blogger or it could be someone from your company with a subject matter expert, and you can actually educate the members on something that is relevant. Uh, if there are any organizational announcements, any industry news, any changes in the industry that, that are happening right now, you can actually get a, an ad hoc meeting with the members and share your perspective and hear their perspective on what's going on. You know, there are multiple ways of doing it. The key is keeping it current, keeping it relevant, keeping it fresh. Wow, a lot of great information. I have just one last follow-up question, and it it goes back to um, something you said earlier when we were talking about the 2-1 rule where you should have a ratio of uh, two customers to every company participant. Do you find that there's a a good number of uh, customers to have on an advisory board? Does uh, Does that change based on the size of your company, or how would, what would you recommend to clients okay so yeah I mean obviously it varies from uh, client to client Um, the magic number that we're able to uh, you know if we have to come up with one number it would be 12 if you have 12 members on a board it seems to work very well in terms of having um, everyone really share their perspectives and thoughts in a very thoughtful and deep way However, we've been running boards that have 30 members on them, and we've been running boards that have five members on them. So, you know, if I had to put a range, I would say anywhere from 12 to 20 would be a okay. good number to uh, to keep in mind when you're designing a board. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Al. This has been fascinating. Lots of great information here for our listeners. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Pleasure to... Uh, To be here, Lisa, thank you for the opportunity. To learn more about advisory boards and other topics of interest to product management and product marketing professionals, check out our website, pragmaticmarketing.com. We've got articles, webinars, e-books, and white papers to help you become more market-driven. And we provide practical, actionable training that can be implemented the day you return to the office. 